0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. All right, this morning, if you have a Bible electronic device, I want to encourage you to take that out and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, Revelation 19. Last week, Pastor Chris did an amazing job opening up this sermon series with us as we took a look at um, the things to come into the future. We looked at the rejoicing that is to be in heaven, and we looked at the marriage supper of the Lamb the time in which all those who are redeemed, all those who are children of God will get a chance to sit at the table with God and just enjoy his presence. Now, I, I know for many of you, tomorrow's gonna be a day where you get a chance to do that. We will get a chance to gather with family and friends and you guys will eat together, maybe barbecue a little bit. As good as that is going to be tomorrow, the feast in heaven is gonna be even more Amazing. Because around that table, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I know, according to God's word, around that table are going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We will sit down and we will feast with our Savior in a way that's going to be so sweet and so amazing. And so I'm so excited that we get a chance to dive into God's Word. I wish I was going to be here to preach this whole series for you, but I know you're going to be in good hands. So don't worry about that. But this morning, as we we get to Revelation chapter 19 and begin our our, our looking today at God's Word, I have a question for you. This past week, how often did you think about heaven? I mean, besides last Sunday morning. right? We thought about heaven because we preached about heaven last week. How often did you think about heaven this week? Is your mind set on like the activity of what's going on in heaven? How often do you set your mind towards heaven? It's possible that maybe your heart and mind are not set on heaven because your heart and mind are set on the busyness of your life. Maybe there's so much noise going on in your life right now that it's impossible for you to even have the opportunity to think about heaven. Maybe life is so fast or life is so crazy that all you can think about are your current circumstances. Why is this a big deal? Why is heaven a big deal? Why should we think about heaven And I think Paul gets it right in Colossians when he says this. He says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's what he says. He says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are going on earth. We should choose to think about what's going on in heaven. For when we set our mind on something, it influences our goals and it sets the path that we walk. Did you catch that? Where you set your mind on helps you determine your goals, and what your goals are determines your daily steps. So if you're living in the world and we're living for the world and our minds are constantly down here, we're missing out on what God wants us to really experience. That's what unbelievers experience. Unbelievers can't set their minds on things above because they have no affection for the things above. They only get consumed with the life down here. So set our minds on things above. Think about what is happening in heaven. Be reminded that Jesus right now is seated on his throne. He's not running around frantic trying to figure things out. No, the fact that he is seated means that he's in a place of settledness. That means that he understands his sovereign control over all things. So though you may, running around like a chicken with your head cut off, which is a scary sight. (laughs) Amen. Jesus is not. His work is accomplished. And he is sat down. How many of you have been over this past weekend working in the garden or working outside trying to work on some projects, maybe cleaning up the patio or whatever? How good did it feel last night to sit down? Amazing. Yeah, amazing, I hear that. It was amazing because you're like, and then you sit down and you're like, look at all that I've done. In a greater way, Jesus is seated on his throne. So we set our minds on that. We set our minds on the fact in heaven is complete holiness. right? God is holy, and there there's, there's justice, there's righteousness, there's mercy, and there's holiness. So if, if in heaven there's holiness, we should set our minds towards being like that. Not trying to live in the lusts of the flesh. We set our minds on heaven because we're reminded of the mission of God. We set our minds on the fact that we are living for a kingdom, not of this world. But we're living for a kingdom where God reigns and, and Christ rules over all things. Where he is our king of kings and he is our Lord of lords. And we don't run after other gods. But he's given us this mission. He's given us this mission to advance the kingdom of God in the hearts of people. While we wait for his return, we are to be busy. So today we're in week two of our series entitled All Things New. And what we've been looking at is we're looking at the revelation, the the peeling back of, of the veil, or a look into the future that God gives the apostle John. Especially specifically as we're looking at 19 through 21, we're looking at what happens in the end. When the, when the kingdom of God comes and this earth as we know it is done away with, what is it going to look like? And how do we live now in light of what we know is to come? That's really the purpose of this series. So that we can understand what is to come so that we can know how we should live now in light of what is to come. Now, this is one of those books of the Bible where so many times people get so bogged down on details and timelines, and in no way is anyone that's going to preach this series for us going to pull up like a timeline on on the stage. They better not, because if they do, you tell me, and I will take care of that. Okay, no timelines here. Right, we're, not, we're not looking at, hey, I'm not going to prognosticate against who is the beast and, and how is this, who's the Antichrist and how's that all going to work out. That's not the part of the series. That's not the point of the series. We know that Jesus can return at any moment. There's nothing that's still keeping him from coming back. You don't know the time, I don't know the time, but scripture promises that he's coming back. And when he's coming back, he's coming back in a way that no one will be able to forget. So in this series, I know you're gonna have a lot of questions. You may have questions about, well, how and what, when and, and, and what does this mean? And, and really the whole point of the series is not to answer those questions not to answer the questions when, but to answer the question what. What's going to happen? So that we can be prepared for it and so that we can live in light of that. So if you have questions, you can ask them. Not on this forum, um, but send whoever preached that day. Send them a text message or an email. Let them answer it for you. And uh, we, we won't have all, all of those specific answers, but we'll look more specifically at what it's going to look like. So today, our key question as we look, or our big idea is, first of all, is that Jesus will defeat God's enemies. Jesus is going to defeat God's enemies. We're going to see that specifically in our text today. And in light of that, we're going to answer the question, What do what we believe about the return of Christ impact how we live today? So what we believe, how should it impact us today? Two, two truths that we're going to see in this passage today. First of all, we're going to see the victorious King, See the victorious king. Look with me in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. The apostle John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one seating on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which it to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty." On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. What we get a chance to see through John's eyes today is that battle which we call the Battle of Armageddon. This is the battle in which Jesus goes to battle against the triad of Satan. We see throughout the, the uh, writings of, of Revelation, we see that in the end, as Satan is seeking to uh, destroy what God has created, seeking to overthrow everything, he's putting together his ultimate plan. And what's crazy about Satan is that his plan is already written in the word, and so he knows it's like he's fulfilling the prophecy of himself, and so he's just gonna be walking in it towards his defeats. But he's gonna try. And so we see in the book of Revelation, there, there's, there's this trinity of evil that begins where Satan is the head. And then he has the beast, which is also known as the Antichrist. And then we have the false prophets. Those are ones that get developed through the book of Revelation. And now we see the battle taking place. That Jesus is coming, and he's coming as a mighty warrior. He's not coming as a babe in a manger. He's not coming as a gentle, lowly servant that bows down to wash the feet of his disciples. No, he comes in the victorious way that shows his power and shows his might and shows his awesomeness. And as he comes, we see John now sees heaven splitting open and he sees the victorious warrior king coming. Jesus is riding in on a white horse. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. I mean, I can try to fathom it in my mind. Jesus coming in a white horse, which was in that time was a sign of conquering. When, when the Roman Empire would go into conquer a new people, the, the leader of that con- conquest would ride a horse. And so the imagery here is is very much tied into the culture of the day. And John gets this picture of this ultimate victorious king in absolute triumph as he's coming from heaven to earth. And we see some ways that Jesus is described here. He's called faithful and true. Unlike all the other leaders of God's people throughout history, Jesus is faithful and true. True. He never leads out of self interest. He never leads out of his own devices or his own will. He leads because of his promises. Any earthly king will always fail, but not Jesus, because he is faithful and true. And what follows is even a mo- uh, even more unbelievable description of Jesus who is this warrior king let's walk through these descriptors of him it says his eyes are like a flame of fire meaning that Jesus sees all things that because his eyes are like fire nothing is hidden from him He knows the the recesses of every person's heart. He knows the darkness and the shadows of all creation. He knows all of that, and he sees it all. Jesus is all-knowing. On his head, it says, are many diadems, meaning that these are crowns. And usually, when you are victorious, you receive a crown. Or when you are sovereign over a nation, you receive a crown. And Jesus on his head are many diadems, meaning that there is no place on earth in all of creation, in all of this, where Jesus is not king. That's a big deal. Right, though there are lots of people flaunting power in in our day, people moving nations and armies all over the place, there is no place in all of creation where Jesus is not king. He has a name written that no one else knows but himself, simply meaning that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. That Jesus, because of his divinity, is other than you and I. Meaning that he is greater than you and I. Because he is divine, he is part of the Godhead. Meaning that he gets the right as creator in all things to set all of the rules. No matter how you and I may or may not like the rules. He goes on and says he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. See, Jesus already conquered death through the shedding of his blood on the cross. And now when he comes, he's going to destroy all other enemies. Anyone else that would be a rebel against him and his rule and his reign, Jesus is coming because of his spilled blood. He's coming for blood. The name of this king is the word of God. All right, this takes us back to John 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The amazing thing about the Word of God is the very words of God have authority in and of themselves. The words have authority. Why? Because God is creator of all things. How did God create? With his words, Right? God spoke and planets came out of his mouth. The word of the Lord has the power to do things. And then it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. From his mouth, from Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword. Jesus is righteous. He's righteous as a warrior. And it says he will rule with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Jesus is a just judge. Jesus is coming. And all the injustice that you and I witness in the world today, all the injustice that that makes us yearn for someone to step in and fix it, it's going to happen. And Jesus is coming. And on his robe... And his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is King and Lord. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to go back for a moment. I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to read this passage again. And I want you to put those pictures in your mind of how the word describes it. Because, again, we need to continue to set our minds on the things above. Set our minds there. Because it's so easy to get caught up in the trappings of our daily life to forget of who Jesus really is. So let me read again to you with your eyes closed. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, you can open your eyes sometimes we see Jesus as we see him depicted in the New Testament sometimes we just want Jesus to be a baby sometimes we want Jesus just to come and, and to wash our feet and sometimes we just want Jesus to be this gentle servant he is that but there's a time coming as I've already said where he's coming for blood You don't want to be an enemy of Jesus. You don't want to be in the crosshairs of the wrath of God and the fury of his righteousness. You want to be on one of those horses, clothed in white linen, that are coming with him. That's where you want to be. Can I get an amen? You see, he's coming. He is coming. And we are going to come with him. Those who believe. Those that come to the place of surrendering their hearts before Jesus Christ and the work that he did while he was here on earth. Where he gave up his life freely, died on a cross, took on the sin and the shame of the world, and endured the wrath of God. He has already done that work. And any of us who believe in that work, we too get to join him. Not only at the feast, but we get to join him when he comes as this amazing warrior king. When we read this text, let us be reminded that while we wait for him, while we wait for him to come, it's our opportunity and it's our joy to be a part of making God's kingdom bigger. Right, it's our responsibility to get as many of our friends to be a part of that heavenly council that comes down on horses with Jesus. Let me remind you what Jesus says in Matthew 28. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the, all the authority that is there has been given to Jesus. And he tells us, tells his disciples on that day and tells you and I on this day to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's given us The power and the authority to go and to make disciples. You can't make disciples sitting on your couch. You actually have to go. Like unless there's someone that's a non-believer sitting next to you on the couch, then you can go make disciples there. (laughs) This is not a passive thing. This is an active. Go and make disciples. Parents, your primary place to make disciples is in your home. Your children are your first mission field. Display before them not a perfect life. Display before them a gospel-centered life. When you fail, you own it. You say, I messed up. I'm walking in the grace of God. Our mission field is our family. Our mission field is our friends. Our mission field is our co-workers. Our mission field is right in front of us. And knowing that Jesus is coming to judge should cause us to have a response in our heart for those that we know in our lives that don't yet know him. If you become so numb to that, I pray that the Lord like cuts the calluses off your heart today. If your heart doesn't break for those in your life that don't know Jesus yet, you've stopped thinking your mind is not on the things above. Your mind is here. And maybe you've drowned, You've allowed the noise of your life to drown out the fact that you are called to be on mission not to go through life with your big Bible thumping people over the head, not, not, not that you're out on the street corner saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. We need to be using those words, but not in that, that way, inside of the relationships that God has already given you. You share the love of Jesus. I love how we see the weapon that God gives us, right? Think about it, even in this passage we see it. What is the weapon that God has given us? It's the word of God, right? When, when, when Jesus was alive and he went out into the wilderness as we attempted, how did he fight Satan? With the word of God? What has he given you and I as our weapon for to, to spare the life of other people? The word of God. How in this passage is Jesus defeating his enemies? With the word of God. He's using the word of God. The word of God has power. You're like, I don't know how to witness. You don't have to witness. Use the word of God. It's the word of God that pierces through the hearts of men. It's the word that does it. It's not your personality. It's not the jokes that you tell. It's not whether you're a people person or you're an introvert. Those are not the things that are gonna win people to the kingdom of God. It is the word of God. People don't need to know what you think. They don't need to know what you feel. They need to know what Jesus has already said. That's our task. It's to be people of the word of God. Second, I want us to see this victorious battle. Look with me in verse 17. John, this is the continued vision that he sees. He says, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called out to all the birds that fly directly overhead. And the angel says, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great.'" And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his armies. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophets who in its presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. You want to see a terrifying image? Sometimes you just got to read the word of God and you just got to go, This is terrifying for the enemies of God. What, what happens here is the, the, this victorious king comes into the victorious battle. And before the passage even starts, we see this image of another feast that's going to happen. As this angel calls all the birds to come and to fly. And come because they're going to feast on the enemies of God. It says, there they're going to gorge themselves on the enemies of God. Something terrible is getting ready to take place. The angels are going to come, or not the angels, the birds are going to come. And these enemies are the main course for these birds. Now we get to this amazing battle, and we see on the battlefield that is before God, Jesus is coming out of heaven with all those who have believed. All his children are coming on white horses, too. And do you see what happens in the battle? The battle's over before it even begins. Do you see that? There, there's no picking up of pitchforks, there's no swords, there's nothing like that. Jesus simply speaks. He simply speaks and victory is his. It's not like he's struggling. You may have have had in your mind this battle of Armageddon as though it's this terrible battle of blood and all that. It is, but it happens not because you and I are battling. It happens because Jesus simply speaks and his enemies just do. That's the power of the word of God power of the word of God makes the dead come alive but it also kills the enemies of God so we see in this instance what's happening is all those who had gathered who had taken on the mark of the beast now I'm, I'm I, I honestly don't think this is a longer conversation that I'm gonna just sidebar the mark of the beast I don't really think is a literal mark on the on the hands and on the, the head I think the mark of the beast is simply someone that has given their affection and their attention over to Satan. Where you and I have the mark, the blood of Christ covering us, those that have willfully given themselves over to be rebels against God, to align themselves up with Satan himself, those are the ones that are marked with the beast or marked with the Antichrist. Those who have been deceived receive this mark mark they're there on this day they're simply defeated we also see the beast is taken and the false prophets remember the, the triad the, the trinity of evil two of those members of that trinity are now bound and cast into the lake of sulfur the lake of fire but there's one that's still there satan has not met his defeat yet we'll get to that next week But Satan is still there. But everyone else, all the other enemies of God are sitting there defeated. But check this. So so what are you and I doing there then? What what are we doing there? We're simply walking in the wake of the battle victory. We didn't do it. You, You and I don't pick up a sword. You and I don't grab a bow and arrow. You and I don't grab nuclear bombs. We we don't do any of that. We walk in the wake of the victory of our king as he does the work and we get the spoils. I'm reminded of another time when one of God's servants stood before another mighty warrior. Remember David and Goliath? when the power of God was on display against a pagan nation and the nations are standing up warring there and the nation of God is, is, is afraid because they've got this massive giant that he's too big. And David's like, wait wait a minute. Guys, why are you allowing this, this pagan nation to mock our God? He says, if you won't go, I will go. And so David goes and, and he's like, Lord, Be with me, be for me. And guess what happens? David goes down there with a a sling and some stones. And he picks up that stone, puts it in a sling, and he yields it at Goliath's head. And guess what happens? Goliath is laid out. David walks over, cuts off his head, and carries it back to his own people and says, Look what God did. And they receive victory. Because God did the victory. Don't, don't, don't just dis- be dismissive about what took place in that battle. It wasn't David. It was God. God brought down the giant. God always brings down the giant. So does what we believe about the return of Christ impact our lives today? You better believe it. In a multitude of ways. Like one, one way we should respond to this is we should be busy about the king's work. We should be people that have the words of the gospel on our tongues, telling people about the love of Christ, telling them about the coming judgment so that they can have an opportunity to be saved. Because how are people gonna know? By the word of God. So people even right now that don't have access to the word of God have no hope of salvation unless they have the word of God. Because it's the word of God that changes the hearts of people. That should motivate us. Second, how this impacts our lives today is that it should give us hope as we struggle through life. Earlier this week, I was reading through Psalm 73, and the the psalmist uh, is writing about, he begins by talking about looking at the world. And he's like, why is it that the wicked always seem to prosper? Like, why is it that everywhere I look, everyone's doing better than me? I'm paraphrasing it, of course. That's not what he says, but I'm gonna gently paraphrase it briefly to, to say how how I saw that. He looked around. He's like, why is this person prospering? Why is this, this, this guy's a deadbeat. Why, why is he able to have all these things? and And he's looking all around and he's becoming frustrated with God because he's like, God, why are you waiting? Why are you not stepping into my mess? Why are you not stepping into my need right now? And then he says this in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, that's the madness that he sees, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, now get this, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. See what happened? He had to get his mind off the earth. He had to enter into the sanctuary of God. He had to go into the presence of God So that his mind and his heart and everything about him can be realigned. Brothers and sisters, if you and I are living too much in this world, you're going to be defeated. You're going to feel overwhelmed. You're going to be confused. But if you're spending time in the sanctuary of God, coming before the God who wants to hear from you. And then you give him space to to speak to you through his word. Then you will experience this. Verse 22 of Psalm 73. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion for forever. For behold those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. Do you believe that today, church? Have you positioned your heart and your life to be near God? Then that's where you find peace. Until he comes again, Pursue the sanctuary of God with all of your minds, with all that you are. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and you've been sitting here and you've just been under the conviction of the word of God, and you're like, hey, I don't want to be a part of that rebel army. Well, simply what you can do is lay down your hands before Jesus, trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you will become a child of God. For many of us that are in this place, you've already done that. But today, the two things I encourage you to do as a result of this, while we wait for Jesus' return, is to be on mission and to pursue the sanctuary of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words today. Father, we thank you that it's easier for us to live now because we know the outcome. We know that you're coming. And when you come, you're coming in a way that is mighty, in a way that is scary, but in a way that's going to accomplish the task. God, your enemies are going to be defeated. And we get to walk in the wake of your victory. So, Father, I pray right now that you would settle our hearts that you would remind us of who you are. And all the anxieties of this world, all of the comings and going of this world would pale in comparison to us knowing who you are. Father, as we sing this song now, we pray that you continue to grab our hearts, continue to give us comfort and peace, we pray in Jesus' name.